everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Ron Hochbaum from McGeorge Law School. Welcome to our show, Ron. Thank you for having me. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us just kind of a brief background about yourself and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm an assistant clinical professor of law um, at the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law, um, where I teach uh, and direct our homelessly, homeless advocacy clinic. Um, and, and before joining the faculty at Pacific McGeorge, um, I taught at a few different law schools at the University of the District of Columbia, as well as Loyola Chicago and Cornell Law School um, in the areas of housing and consumer law, uh, health justice, and farm worker advocacy. Um, and before teaching, um, I was an attorney on behalf of unhoused people um, at the Homeless Action Center in Berkeley and Oakland, California. And it's kind of interesting, um, and maybe you feel this way too, but this issue um, when I was young was a huge issue and then it kind of disappeared and now it's really circled back maybe in the last five years or so. And so it seems like your, uh, your career has uh, gone straight into uh, kind of current events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, re in reality, the, the homeless crisis um, has been a crisis for 40 years um, since we um, defunded public housing um, in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, but in the last five to 10 years, um, the homeless population, especially in California on the West Coast, um, has, has sort of exploded. Um, and um, people really wanna see um, productive solutions to homelessness, right? Um, they, they are getting tired and, and people on the street are getting tired of this as well, right? And so housing affordability is a huge issue um, um, in our state and drives homelessness and it's really important. Um, that we we have a renewed focus on this and pursue productive solutions. And so how does that relate to your work? Yeah, so um, I uh, teach this clinic um, at Pacific McGeorge called the Homeless Advocacy Clinic. And in the Homeless Advocacy Clinic, we represent uh, justice-involved people, meaning people who have had contact with the criminal justice system, um, who are also experiencing homelessness, um, or, at, or are at significant risk of becoming homeless. Um, and we represent them in about five core areas, all designed to promote access to housing and employment, 
Uh, we do public benefits work with an emphasis on social security disability. Um, and that's designed to provide people stable income so that they can pay rent. We work on criminal record remedies to ensure that those criminal records do not interfere with rental and employment applications. Uh, we address criminal fines and fees, especially for tickets that our clients are receiving by virtue of living outdoors. Um, and we do a little child support modification and credit repair as well. And, and working on this wide variety of cases um, is what I would call, and, and many other attorneys would call, a holistic legal services model. Um, I think it's particularly important to employ this model um, with people who are experiencing homelessness because all of these issues work together to prevent people from achieving housing stability. So if I were to focus on an expungement case or a criminal record, that would be certainly important, um, but it might not move the client closer to housing if that person didn't have a stable income, which is why I also work on the social security cases. And so what I would say is at the end of the day, uh, we believe in the homeless advocacy clinic in the right to housing, and we work to address all of the legal barriers to achieving that goal. And, and how do things like mental illness and addiction play into that? Yeah, so I, I think um, when we're speaking about homelessness, there's a common perception um, that the, the driver or the primary driver of homelessness um, is mental health um, and drug use. Um, and, and that's not really true, right? Um, or, or the data does not bear that out. Certainly people experiencing homelessness um, may struggle with mental health and substance use concerns. Um, but in states and countries across, uh, states across the country and countries across the world, people who experience mental health concerns um, and substance use concerns are stably housed. Um, and so what's different about our situation here in California um, and in many states across the country um, is that it's an affo a housing affordability crisis. Um, and when we can ensure that people are, are stably housed, we're also much more likely to be able to make sure that they can attend doctor's appointments and address mental health concerns um, and access substance use um, and addiction recovery services. And, and so how does your clinic work? Um, what kind of work do law students do in this? Yeah, so um, for those in your audience that might not be familiar uh, with law school clinics, um, they're in a sense, uh, nonprofit law firms that are embedded within law schools um, and seek to serve uh, low-income residents in their communities. At McGeorge, uh, most of our clinics are housed within uh, a, a, an office called McGeorge Community Legal Services. Um, and in addition to home, the Homeless Advocacy Clinic, McGeorge has clinics in immigration law, in elder and health law, in bankruptcy law. And so students enroll in these clinics um, and they spend half their time in class learning fundamental lawyering skills. Um, and then the other half um, of their time working on real cases on behalf of real clients. And so in the Homeless Advocacy Clinic, like many of the other clinics, students are responsible for all aspects of client representation. They conduct interviews, they research the applicable law, they advise clients in front of, or they advise clients on their legal matters, they draft pleadings, and, and even when cases are scheduled for trial, they stand up in front of a judge and, and argue their case in court. 
Um, and I, I will just um, briefly add that I, I really think this clinic um, at McGeorge is incredibly special. There are so few of these across the country. Um, and, and I have to give a lot of credit to Dean Michael Hunter Schwartz and Professors Brown, uh, Professor Melissa Brown and Professor Dorothy Landsberg, because they worked tirelessly on making sure that this could happen. Um, they found a, a fantastic um, partner in the CareStar Foundation to fund the clinic. Um, and so not, we're not only um, able to uh, address people's barriers to housing and employment, um, but we're also growing the legal profession's capacity to respond to homelessness by training the next generation of lawyers. And I should have asked this earlier, but I'll ask it now. How did you get in, into this issue uh, yourself? Yeah, so um, when I went to law school, I knew that I wanted to um, work on behalf of people living in poverty to do some kind of civil rights law. Um, but I, I didn't know exactly where I was gonna focus my efforts. Um, but my first summer um, of law school, I interned at an organization um, uh, in Berkeley and Oakland called the Homeless Action Center. Um, and, and it was a transformational experience for me. Um, it was uh, there that I really learned um, progressive models of lawyering, lawyering that centers the clients, um, that seeks input from the community and really seeks to empower people. Um, and so uh, after I graduated, um, I, I stayed in touch with that agency all throughout law school. Um, and when I was ready to practice, um, they welcomed me back with open arms and, and I can't thank them enough because, because they set me on this trajectory. And um, you published an article called Bathrooms as a Homeless Rights Issue, um, which, um, you know, interestingly enough, um, you know, as a parent, um, it's a big issue too, because if anyone who has a little kid knows, um, you know, drive around town and try to find a bathroom, especially during a pandemic, uh, when, when your kid's about to have an accident, then imagine, um, what it's like for a homeless person uh, to uh, uh, to have to go through daily life not having regular access to bathrooms. Yeah, yeah. So in a moment, I'll come back to your point about how this really touches everyone, right? Um, and it's such an important issue. But you know, in, in the article that I wrote, um, I, I explore this really troubling phenomenon in which uh, cities and counties and states uh, criminalize uh, public urination and defecation, um, but maintain uh, few, if any, public restrooms. Um, and I speak to how this has a disproportionate impact on people experiencing homelessness. Um, and I, I compare their experience um, as unhoused people to other groups that have had to fight for access to bathrooms um, and really still today experience discrimination in bathroom access, including women, people of color, people living with disabilities and transgender people. Um, and so, like you said, um, this, this issue really touches everyone, right? We, we all use the bathroom, we use it multiple times a day. Um, there are people um, that have to use the bathroom with increased frequency, right? Um, seniors, pregnant women, children, you know, people with particular medical conditions. There, there are people who work outdoors, right? Don't have the luxury of working in an office, or being at or working from home all day long, like gig workers and delivery drivers, it touches them, right? It has a huge impact on their lives. Um, and 
and and local businesses, right, will stand to benefit stand to benefit from from having more access to public bathrooms as well, right? Because tourists and consumers um, will be able to spend more time in public, and so so this is really just a, a hugely important issue, um, and one that we should all um, be be spending more time and encouraging our, our local governments to focus on. And you know, you've talked uh, a little bit about the criminalization of homelessness, and you mentioned you know public urination and defecation. There's also uh, camping laws and all and all sorts of of laws that it, it's almost like, and maybe maybe that's the wrong way to couch it, but. Um, it seems that people want to make the issue go away without actually addressing it. And so they try to make it as inconvenient as possible to be homeless um, as though that were going to magically make it disappear. Yeah. So, um, you know, but before um, I dive too deeply in, into a discussion of, of the merits of the criminalization of homelessness, right. I think it might, might be, best to just give folks a little bit of a primer, right? Because I, I definitely think laws like public urination defecation are part of this, um, especially when we don't provide folks um, public bathrooms. But, you know, just to give folks a sense of what I mean when I talk about the criminalization of homelessness, um, it, it is the outlawing of activities that people have to engage in, right, um, to survive. And, and sometimes also, um, charitable acts that are intended to assist homeless individuals in, in pursuit of their survival, right? And so common examples that people have likely heard about are, are prohibitions on sleeping and camping in public, sitting and lying down, um, panhandling, uh, living in one's vehicle, or, or, or even sharing food with someone um, who's experiencing homelessness. Um, and, and, you know, your, your point about um, how misguided this is as an approach um, is really well taken, right? Criminalizing homelessness is problematic for, for so many reasons, right? For, for starters, it, it outlaws behavior that most of us would consider harmless, right? Um, in addition to that, uh, it really does nothing to address the underlying problem um, and actually frequently serves as a barrier to accessing services and resources that people need to escape homelessness. Um, there's a recent report out of San Francisco um, that shows that 74% of people experiencing homelessness have been approached by the police in the last year. 20% um, have been approached on a, a weekly basis um, and 69% have been cited under one or more of these anti-homeless laws in the last year. Um, and so, you know, if you thought about that data and whether police were targeting constitutionally protected communities in the same way that they are people experiencing homelessness, there would be no argument that this is a civil rights violation. Um, and, and to top things off, it's really just the most expensive way you could go about doing this with the least results. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because, you know, I, I think a lot of people would, would probably counter and say, well, it's not harmless um, because there, there's a public nuisance issue. And certainly, you know, um, drive around, you know, even Sacramento and you, you see all these uh, encampments and everything along 
uh, various streets, and and there are uh, concerns there. But using the criminal uh, legal system to address that is expensive um, because it's expensive to house people that way, and it doesn't do any good. Um, you know, you're you're not getting them the services that they need to be able to get housing, and and you're doing it in a way that's really expensive. Uh, so so it seems like there has to be a better approach. Um, that certainly um, uh, there is, and and um, you know it's right there in the name, right? Um, it, we have to provide people housing, and we have to make sure that we have affordable housing. Right, um, and that and that is really um, the only way that we will cr- climb out of our homelessness um, crisis. Um, and you know, it just seems like the entire legal system is kind of stacked against homeless people anyway. Um, you know, uh, we cover a lot of uh, court hearings, and often what will happen is a homeless person will be arrested for a fairly minor offense, but then they're held on bail, uh, which of course they can't uh, afford to get out on. Uh, you know, we, we covered a case uh, where the guy was uh, homeless. Um, he was arrested in a Walmart parking lot uh, for having explosives, except he didn't have explosives. Um, and then uh, he's held in custody on bail. Um, and he, he basically pleaded with the judge and he said, hey, look, I have a job. Uh, if you hold me on bail, I'm, I'm going to lose my job. Um, and the judge said, well, there's nothing I can do. Um, and, and so, you know, it was this, just this moment of inhumanity of how is this helpful? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when, when it comes to um, bail, you know, I, I will say um, I, I certainly uh, should defer to experts to study and advocate around this issue. But but I have no doubt um, that people experiencing homelessness are disproportionately impacted by money bail for the same reasons that bail in general disproportionately affects people um, who are living in poverty. What I can tell you, especially with the anti-homeless laws that I do study is that 90% of people experiencing homelessness uh, report that they can't afford uh, a ticket for sitting and lying down and camping and so on. Um, And those tickets are usually around $100, $200. Once you start to add the fees, um, they might grow quite a bit, um, but certainly uh, much less than than bail is usually set at. Um, And so um, I know that unhoused people are being um, roped in um, to incarceration pre-trial, right? Um, pre, pre-finding of a guilt in the same ways that so many people experiencing poverty are. Um, and, and that is something we, we too need to address in our criminal justice system. So talk a little bit about anti-panhandling laws. Um, do you guys get into the issue of constitutionality or are you simply uh, concerned with an individual facing uh, sanctions uh, based on these laws? Yeah, so uh, we have not seen um, uh, panhandling tickets yet 
um, in our work in the homeless advocacy clinic. Um, although uh, we would certainly um, defend people uh, against such tickets. Um, and, and if necessary, we, we would make arguments um, around their constitutionality. Um, but I will say the Homeless Advocacy Clinic does um, try to operate in the space of representing people um, in uh, lower levels of court. Um, we have not yet um, sought to, to take on um, impact cases that, that would alter um, the how, how local courts see um, the constitutionality of some of these cases. Um, but, but to your point, right, um, anti-panhandling laws are part of the criminalization of homelessness, right? They, they are like laws like camping and sitting, on the pub, uh, sitting in public um, uh, that people, uh, in, that is behavior that people engage in to survive. Um, but unlike those laws, um, they are prohibited usually under the First Amendment as opposed to the Eighth Amendment's bar on cruel and unusual punishment. Right. And, and over time, um, cities um, have, have sought to evade these First Amendment protections of free speech. Right. Um, and find other ways uh, to uh, criminalize panhandling. Um, they may um, try to target what they'll call aggressive panhandling um, or maybe uh, try to target panhandling. Um, in particular locations, right, like on highway uh, off ramps or um, medians in the street. Um, but these variations of panhandling laws um, are almost uniformly struck down um, under the First Amendment. Um, and, and what I think uh, courts are trying to convey to us um, is that someone's financial status um, makes them no less entitled to the fundamental rights um, that we all enjoy, right? Um, if you and I can go raise money on the street for a nonprofit, or a religious organization or a political campaign, they can ask for contributions as well. Um, and also, uh, what what's your assessment of some of these sit lie ordinances? Can you tell me what you mean by that? Um, an ordinance that um, uh, I forget how they word it, but uh, basically it prohibits somebody from uh, sitting or lying uh, for a period of time or in a certain location. Um, and, and so basically it gives police the discretion to, um, well, if I say harass, that might be a little uh, pejorative, but you get the, the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So um Sit-lie ordinances uh, should also be seen um, under the scheme of criminalization of homelessness, right? Um, all of us, um, no, no matter how hard we would try, right, no matter how much exercise we engage in, at some point in the day are going to have to sit down and lie down. And the only difference um, uh, between you and me and someone who might be experiencing homelessness, right, is that um, we don't think that that's a problem um, uh, if it's done on private property, right? Um, but when conducted in public, right, we, we now um, use these laws to um, harass folks um, to the point that they would leave, um, leave an area, right? Or to bar them from um, particular areas that we, we don't want them to be in. Um, and I actually, um, in, in my early days, of working at the Homeless Action Center, 
um, uh, organized with folks to resist um, uh, these criminalization efforts, right? So in, in 2012, uh, the Berkeley City Council uh, at the behest of the Berkeley Business Improvement District uh, voted to put um, what was called Measure S on the ballot in the city of Berkeley. And Me Measure S would have actually made it a misdemeanor um, to sit on the sidewalk. Um, and, and folks who would have been um, cited or arrested under Measure S um, would have had to pay fines of upwards of $1,000 um, and maybe even spend six months in jail, right? And so I got together um, with a number of unhoused people uh, local organizers and activists and attorneys. Um, and, and we put together a campaign uh, opposing the measure, right? The, the Yes on S campaign outspent us about seven to one, right? They, they had mailers, they had law sign, lawn signs, all, all of the trappings of a well-financed campaign. But what we had was people power, right? And we knocked on doors and we talked to people and we explained what they were doing was not only wrong, but discriminatory. Right, and, and we were out there every day and night. And on election night, we actually won 52 to 48. Um, and I, I really remain very proud of that work on Measure S because um, to the best of my knowledge, it remains the only anti-homeless law um, that was defeated at the ballot box in the country. Um, and, and overall, I mean, I know the issue of homelessness has gotten a lot of attention um, in recent years, and there have been various remedies sought. Are you seeing things getting better or worse from the standpoint of the legal environment, not necessarily from the standpoint of homelessness overall? Yeah, so I think that's a complicated question. I, I think there have been um, important wins in, in recent years. Um, but what we're seeing is, is a lot of pushback um, and um, efforts uh, to skirt those wins um, um, by cities and counties and states across the country. Um, what, one win that I think is particularly important to mention um, is a case in the Ninth Circuit um, called Martin v. Boise. Um, and uh, what the court uh, ruled in that case um, is that uh, laws that criminalize um, homelessness, um, like camping or sleeping in public, are uh, violations of people's um, Eighth Amendment rights to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, especially when municipalities do not provide um, all reasonable alternatives, right? So in this case, Martin v. Boise in particular, um, what uh, happened was the city of Boise was trying to enforce its anti-camping laws, um, but um, they did not have enough shelter beds um, for all the people experiencing homelessness um, in uh, the city of Boise. And what the court said is um, when people have no ability to um, uh, not uh, avoid breaking the law, right? You cannot enforce that law, right? If they, if they cannot go access the shelter, that, then it is cruel um, to uh, cite them, right? Um, or arrest them um, for sleeping or camping in public. Um, but now uh, what you're seeing is a lot of um, effort to, uh, to evade that, that precedent, right? Here in the Ninth Circuit. 
Um, and, and one way that you're starting to see it um, is that um, cities uh, across the state um, are working to build uh, shelter beds, right? Not housing that will end homelessness, right? Um, but shelter beds, um, as well as sanctioned encampments, right? And, and, and it's this, this trend around sanctioned encampments that I, I, I think is a really problematic, right? Because it, it, is, it is not even shelter, right? Um, it is a plot of land Right, that that you will say is a des that cities will say is a designated space that people are allowed to camp on. You know, if, if you asked me a few years ago um, whether I thought sanctioned encampments were a good thing, I I probably would have said yes, right? Um, because I think that sanctioned encampments can make it easier for people experiencing homelessness to access basic needs like food and water and showers, right? Um, they can also make it easier for people to work with case managers and other social service providers. But um, what you're seeing is that sanctioned encampments are now um, being used as a way to evade uh, the Ninth Circuit's ruling in Martin v. Boise, right? Um, and the thought is that if we provide people a space in which they can camp, right, um, that, that we can now start enforcing all of the anti-homeless laws that never worked in the first place, right? And created barriers for people um, accessing housing, right? And so, you know, I, I, I think that there's a way to implement these programs um, that is productive, um, that is beneficial to people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, but what you're starting to see in cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Sacramento and Chico um, is not that, right? Um, uh, it, it is very much um, a way of, of keeping people, uh, invisibilizing people, so to speak, right? Um, um, and making sure that um, we can continue to pursue these punitive approaches. Um, and then overall, would you say you're hopeful or pessimistic about where things are going? I I always remain a bit hopeful, right? Um, but I, I really think um, that in order for us to get to where we need to go, we have to change um, our discourse, right? Um, and, and, and we need to really listen to people um, with lived experience, right? Who have been on the streets themselves. Um, we, we have to start treating folks um, with dignity um, and respect, right? Um, a big reason that our homeless response has failed um, is because it fails to acknowledge the humanity of, of people who are unhoused, right? Um, and, and we blame people for their situations when it's clear um, that uh, homelessness um, is a systematic failure, right? We strip people of their agency um, and we don't give them a voice in this process. Um, and until that changes, right, until we start treating people with re the respect that they deserve, we're just going to keep repeating the same mistakes that we've been making for the last 40 years uh, of this modern day homelessness crisis. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, talking about this fascinating and very uh, time uh, uh, appropriate topic. Um, yeah, I, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate this because we desperately need more attention on this issue so that we can start um, making sure our government actors pursue productive and not punitive solutions to homelessness. 
One of the biggest issues around right now is homelessness, um, a byproduct of our housing crisis and our lack of affordable housing. We've been talking here on Everyday Injustice with Ron Huckbaum from McGeorge School of Law. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.